and welcome to Radio Meteor, the podcast where I watch an episode of 90s anime Gundam Wing and ramble about it because some girls on OkCupid get guys who are like, hey, do you want to see the Gundam model I just built? And it's very sweet, and they get married. And I get extreme frisbee enthusiasts with body odour. This week, episode 9, Bōkoku no Shōzō, the portrait of a ruined country. Let's get into it. This week, I'm going to go through this episode in order of how things appeared. You all seem to like that format from episode 6, so maybe we'll stick with it. As the episodes get plottier, I think this is also the best approach, and this is a plotty old episode. If you haven't watched it, feel free to pause and go do that now. Still with me? Back? Okay, so the episode opens with Zex and Noin, who have just taken over the area they've captured. And Noin is pleased that they've saved the town. I believe it's somewhere near Luxembourg. Noin comments that the beauty of places doesn't change if the ruler does. And Zex tells her that Oz isn't there to rule, but to liberate. Noin is surprisingly cynical about this. For now, she says. Imawa. Zex says it's about giving a second chance to the countries who formed the alliance in the first place. So I suppose he's implying that Oz represents a fresh start. Maybe what we're seeing here is Zex maintaining faith in Trey's and an indication that no matter if Noventa had been priming the pumps for peace, it wouldn't have worked because the Alliance has so many Bonapartes and so much bad history, both on Earth and in space, that they needed a clean slate. I've been trying to untangle Zex's motivations over the last few episodes, but perhaps, and I'm basing this in part off of background meta, he infiltrated the Alliance for Vengeance, but fell in with Trey's. Trey's similarly wishes to see the alliance changed or overthrown and takes Zex in with perhaps an implied agreement to aid him in getting access to the people responsible for destroying the Sank Kingdom and possibly even letting Zex reclaim it and on top of that establish a world order. There's a lot going on. The next scene is Otto arriving and in the English subtitles Zex says Otto I'm so glad to see you which you know isn't that sweet. Uh, unfortunately, in Japanese, he says, Otto, mata itezo. Like, Otto, I've been waiting. Um, kind of impatient, actually. And also, quite amusingly, Otto is a homonym of the character, which means husband. So, there's another rare pair you never wanted or knew you needed. <laughs> You're welcome. Otto has arrived bringing the Tolgis with him, which he describes quite charmingly as Sotonam noboru uma. Uh, an ambitious horse to ride, which I think is a massive improvement on what the English subtitles provide, which is, uh, this tall geese is one vicious suit. <laughs> anyway, now that he has his machine, Zex immediately declares he's off to liberate the Sank Kingdom, and, and that's what this episode is all about. But before that, basketball, uh, in which we see Hero and Duo use great economy of movement to kick butt. Duo at this stage is now gleefully using Hero's name left, right and centre, now that he knows it. Um, I think we've established that Duo both likes and is impressed by Hero, and I suspect he's kind of simply invited himself along on Hero's undercover student adventure. Hero doesn't seem too thrilled about it, but then he's not in the running for miscongeniality, so we have to assume he's okay with this on the basis that he hasn't booted Duo into the ocean or shot him. 
so these guys are having a little business chat about the Alliance base that needs blowing up. And it's like, who's going to get there first? When Relina arrives in her full-blown private girl school persona, you know, Watakushi and everything. Um, Juo refers to her in this scene as Ojo-san, by the way. Which again, I think, is Juo displaying a very astute sense of humour. The O in Ojo-san is honorific, as is the San. And Jo is a way of saying young lady, or, or it's how you refer to somebody else's daughter in a polite and respectful manner. It's how Relina would speak about other girls of her status, and Ojo-san is exactly what she is. Juho is then not only teasing Hiro, because he wouldn't say it, and he's standing in the background looking very awkward at this girl who's chased him down, he's teasing Relina, but he's also doing it by playing on his own status, uh, by fancying up his generally loose and easy approach to language. He does this again near the end of the episode, and it's brilliantly funny. Um, in his slangy accent, he uses this polite, posh school approach to small talk, and I can't even approximate it in English because I'm too Relina-like, but it's almost like a reverse My Fair Lady, if you know that film. So like, Eliza Doolittle gets her posh accent, but then she starts talking about gut rock gin and, and scragging people, and it's the reverse. It's like, Duo has his slangy accent, but then he's making polite small talk. It's, it's quite, it's quite good. Um, you know, also just cue up that My Fair Lady AU fanfic. Basically getting you guys to write me fanfic is actually my whole agenda here. Anyway, next scene. Oz are attacking the base at the Sank Kingdom and we find out some of the dirty history of the Alliance through the narrator. Um, it was founded to handle disputes between countries and bring peace, but they instead started using military power to overtake countries and in some cases force them into the Alliance, you know, presumably where they weren't keen on signing up. Oz, funded by Romafella, provided the arms that the Alliance needed to do this, the mobile suits. It's therefore quite hypocritical of them to be now be proclaiming themselves as the liberators of these countries, um, and that they are going to overthrow the Alliance. Uh, some things we learn about the Sank Kingdom. It's by the seaside. Very nice. It's pretty mountainous. Got massive cliffs. There's no discernible way to get out of the city up the cliffs though. Um, maybe there's a tunnel, a secret tunnel, who knows. Um, but it is also one of the only Alliance bases we've seen so far to be actually armed and defended properly. Um, it's got lasers coming out of the wazoo. Zex struggles with his geese. Uh, he's scared of getting hurt or dying, uh, which is sort of highly surprising um, for his character. But it's a very human reaction, actually, and it's in direct contrast to the likes of Hiro, Troa, and Rufei, who are much more committed to confronting whatever comes their way head-on, including death. Uh, I think it's important that there's this contrast, but I'm not sure how well it's being portrayed in this episode. The teenage pilot's willingness to sacrifice everything has so far kind of been promoted, I feel. Uh, whereas Zex's more normal and kind of natural hesitation about dying for the cause is loosely labelled by him as cowardice. There's quite a lot to unpack here, so I'll come back to this later. Meanwhile, Trace is enjoying a nice glass of presumably something choice on his aeroplane. The text pretty much says wine, uh, the visuals pretty much look like ketchup, and he's talking to Lady Un. 
Uh, he states in this conversation that his goal is to try and take over the earth, Pinky, and ultimately for Oz to be hated. Why? Seven-legged bug, why? Alright, hot theory at this point. As discussed, Oz hasn't got a squeaky clean record, um, so maybe Trace is on board with the whole new clean slate approach. Or perhaps he actually wants to revert Earth back to the pre-Alliance days and remind them all of why they sought to form an alliance in the first place, because fractured nations at war was beneficial to no one except, you know, villainous souls, etc, etc. And then let humanity have a second go at unified peaceful governance with the benefit of hindsight, re all of the mistakes they made with the alliance. So I had this theory at this point, and then Trey's goes and spoils it all by saying, Trey's goes and, <laughs> and then Trey's goes and spoils it all by saying something stupid like a metaphor. It's about war. Doo, doo, doo. Oh, okay, well, he didn't do that, but. Oh. There is some shit going down tonight. That's the police coming to arrest me for such terrible jokes. Um, anyway, he didn't do that, but he did spoil all of my conjecture at that point by saying that if Oz are hated, then they'll be the strongest. Because if you're hated, you have to get stronger. So, I just still don't know what he's doing. You're an annoying bug, Trace. <laughs> Meanwhile... Catcher's getting scolded. All of his Maganax have literally formed a line to slap his wrist and give him the old do you know how worried we were? Wait until your father gets home kind of business. But it's okay. Mama Rashid kind of shoes them all off and smooths all of the ruffled feathers uh, and makes time for Catcher to muse about the heart of space and his lovely violent new friends. It's sweet. Um, he doesn't explain what he means by the heart of space though. Uh, that's left annoyingly vague. Next, we call in on Tro and Wufei, who have been sitting by the campfire in silence for at least two hours. Um, Catherine turns up with soup, just to, well, can't even say she's interrupting because they are just sitting there, um, but in a very relatable way, points out that they're being moody bores, you know, kumbaya, you salty assholes. Uh, here she is a little older sistery, but in a nice way. So. She corrects Tro's manners by saying, Go ai satsune. So that's a greeting. So she basically approaches with soup and he says, What do you want? And she was like, Oh, that's a nice greeting. Um, which sounds poor in English, but it's it's honestly it's such a mum thing to do in Japan. Like when I was teaching, you get the kids sometimes forget themselves, so they're supposed to greet the teacher. I guess they get excited or distracted or they were just a bit shy. And you'd see the mums collar them and say things like, Goai Satsua, like, where's your greeting? Like, Sensei ni Goai Satsua. You know, well, aren't you going to say something to teach her? And I kind of get the impression that Kathy has done stuff like this a few times now. You know, bless her heart. Um, she includes Wufei in this, by the way. She's addressing both of them and she rolls out this old adage like, it's best to learn manners when you're young. And, uh, you know, it, it, oh god, slay my ass. It, they practice polite small talk following that comment. Um, Catherine leaves, and Troa, hostess with the mostess, Barton, pours out some coffee and politely apologises for the quality. And Wufei, you know, with a little bomb interlude, says thank you ever so nicely. 
Oh, and he says it in Chinese, by the way. Uh, maybe Wufei only has socially polished Mandarin and just horrible Japanese. I, I kind of like that idea. Like he's he's learned Japanese in such a haphazard manner, or from like such a weird source that he can only speak what you call Yankee Japanese. There's nothing to do with Yankee Doodle kind of Yankee. It's like the teen delinquent gangs of the eighties and nineties. Like, like imagine a kid who's come to an English-speaking country having only ever learned to speak English from, like, rap music. I think, like, I kind of love the idea of that is, that is, um, Wufei's approach here. Um, the angst bomb is also beautifully emotionally constipated. Like, the conversation literally goes, Would you like some coffee? I'm sorry, it's not very good. I'm not good enough to pilot Nataku. Ah, I see. Here's the coffee. Thank you. <laughs> this show, I swear, you can understand why Japanese fandom treats it as a crack anime. It's just, it is so silly sometimes. But uh, that's probably why I enjoy it. Meanwhile, back to Otto and Zex. Uh, we learn that the Torgis has a mind of its own, foreshadowing the Zero system, I suppose. Or perhaps it is a reveal that the Gundams all operate with an AI of some sort. I think, you know, later episodes confirm this, obviously, but at this stage we're not clear on it. Um, Zex struggles to find cohesion with the tall geese. Uh, he doesn't trust the machine, and he's disturbed to have started feeling that it's a better pilot than him. To the extent that he addresses himself in the third person again, he does that sort of Zex moment one more time. Um, he mentions that this superior machine demands from its pilot an attitude of death or victory. This, again, is one of those things where I feel like I can't just gloss over it, and it's something I'm not wholly comfortable with how this is presented. Um, Otto also says something which I couldn't quite make out the Japanese for, but in the English is translated as the tall geese is suited for suicide missions. Now I know what the Gundams are after. They're seeking the best place to die i.e. fulfil the suicide mission. Now, of course, this is building up to what is coming, I know, but not only with Otto, but with Hero, but at the same time, it's it's one of those situations in the show where I think coming at it so many years later, have it having been written, and coming at it from a Western perspective, you sort of feel like you're obliged to ask the question, is this okay? And it's not a question with an answer, you know, it's not a question I can answer not being Japanese. I, I have no idea how people perceive this kind of thing over there, but um, I, I also feel like I just can't skip over the fact that this is, has a reflection on real life. So the philosophy and causes behind the use of the kamikaze pilots in World War II is kind of deep and dark and complicated, and it's not something I'm going to explore in full because Firstly, I just don't know enough about it, uh, and secondly, I don't want this podcast to go down that route. But in terms of my main thoughts about how this is used and is overlapping in Gundam Wing, is that there's a huge difference when we talk about man and machine, and I'll, I'll do my best to give that some context. Now, I may be wrong, but how I've always understood it is that Japan resorted to kamikaze flights not because it was an efficient method of damaging their opponents in war and gaining victory, but because they'd reached a point of desperation. The aircraft and the capability to arm those aircraft had become outmatched by the other side, and their resources had been exhausted. Yet the 
nationalistic pride remained and it was so crucial to holding everything together because at that point things were on a downhill slope I mean they hadn't been going well for anybody for a while but it was starting to reach a real crunch point um, and there was such a powerful and overriding need to save face and to believe that you know as a nation that they were insurmountable um, there was this sort of subscription to this ritual death approach to war you know it's better to die than be a prisoner better to be killed or kill yourself than admit defeat which fed into this concept of, of the kamikaze pilots i think as well it's probably worth acknowledging that just like on the british and american and the, the german armies the, a lot of the people involved were quite young or relatively uneducated um, and had been raised in an environment in which there was a class system and the authority was not and in some cases could not be questioned particularly in japan they had still this uh, conception that the emperor was descended from the gods and he had never been heard before until he read on the radio the um japan surrender so his word was law and fact and kind of anything less than strength and obedience to the needs of the nation and, and the decrees of the emperor was just shamefully un, un japanese and, and this little bit of this episode is kind of pulling on those themes, I think. But I'm not quite sure which direction it's pulling them from. That's the thing I can't answer. But if you have any doubts that this is what it is hearkening to, then know this. Um, as Otto descends, he shouts, Zexuo Banzai. Zexuo means King Zex, or is king. And I trust that Banzai needs no translation. That is the kamikaze cry. So I guess there are several sides to this. I mean on the one hand if we go with the Watsonian perspective Otto's suicide as far as he that character is concerned is a brave act. It's an act of honouring um, and it's an act of noble sacrifice and it, it does succeed. It wasn't in vain. On the other hand, if we come out and we look at this from the Doylean perspective, that it is such an unnecessary death, because Oz have arms and weapons, they have intelligent weapons, they have other resources. They could have taken Sank back by other means, and it didn't have to be concluded that day, other than that the story decided it had to. Um, so this kamikaze flight has not been made under anywhere near the same circumstances as those of actual life. So from that perspective, and then dipping back into the perspective of the in-show characters, what Otto does is just madness. It's so out of kilter with the circumstances. Um, and Zex says, you know, what are you doing? And he chases after him and he, he fails to stop Otto. And so we have this kind of tragedy. And that on one level I'm fine with, um, but what really makes me kind of bug out is that it happens and then the matter's just dropped. So Zex rushes after him and fails, but then nothing more is said about it in this episode. He doesn't acknowledge that Otto was honouring him or how he feels about that. He doesn't say that, you know, it, there's, just, there's just no comment on it. Um, and that's where I feel that like, by not finishing that arc, 
but not handling the matter head on and immediately. It's almost kind of like the show condones that this, this was a terrible act and we're very sad that Otto's died, but it's also that it was the right thing to have done and that there was no other choice. And, and that's where I start to feel uncomfortable. And we can drop the argument that there wasn't time in the episode to address it because everything that happens with Catra, Hero, Duo, Relina, Troe, it's, it's filler. It could have been bumped out quite comfortably. And I think that's what gets me. You know, I am all for tackling difficult topics in anime. I am happy for art to imitate life quite closely. But to my mind, there should also be a commitment to do it meaningfully and to develop it fully. Um, you know, you shouldn't. I don't like it when media uses this kind of thing as a flash piece for a bit of interest. But um, but as I said, this is just a is this okay question because I can't answer what Japanese people feel when they watch this scene. Maybe it's just not a sensitive issue at all. You know, it's often we like to wade in and be like, oh, this is this and that's that, and then there's the entirety of Japan just sort of shrugging, going, well, no, we're we're fine with it. Um, but. I think my conclusion is that by writing Otto's suicide in this matter, it didn't really do the show a massive favour. Um, it's a piece of narrative that actually dates the show, in my opinion. It's something that makes it seem old in that, oh boy, different times, you know, how far we've come kind of way. Anyway, I'll leave, I'll leave that there for now. It's just a, is it okay that they've included this? I don't know. But um, let's round off with something else so I don't end this on a, on a downer. Okay, one last thing about Zex. When Zex goes inside to address his father's portrait and he takes his helmet off, he declares himself unfit to lead the Sank Kingdom and we learn finally that he and Relina are siblings. And also that even before things went wrong for Sank, Relina was pipped to be the next ruler. He says she would be much better at it just as you always said. It's that kind of sentence. And that's really curious to me. Like, did their dad just recognise that his son was a real piece of work? I don't know. When did he decide that Relina would be better at this than his son? I mean, when did that relationship break down? Because they were both really young when Sank blew up. Do we ever find out? Um, I'm not sure we do, but I think that'd be a really interesting addition to any fanfic. Like, how did Zex get written off so young um, by his dad as, as the potential leader of the Sank Kingdom? Uh, yeah, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see how Zex progresses. Um, yeah. Finally, I have some listener comments! Yay! Uh, we've been talking in the Discord uh, about titles, uh, so shout out to Harotype for some clarity here. Un's underlings call her Tokusa. It's a, a kind of a made-up title, albeit it's based on actual military grades. The Sa indicates that she's uh, in a senior position, and then the Toku is from specials. So we talked about the specials who are part of Oz led by Trez. So that's where that comes from. So um, Tokusa means like specials leader, I guess. In the English subtitles they tend to call her lieutenant colonel. The sa, um, as I'll explain in a moment, indicates that Lady Un is a higher pay grade than Zex. Uh, and also the narrator uses a different title to talk about Lady Un. Uh, but 
with that conversation in mind, I did keep an ear open this episode and I have a tally sheet of how each character addresses each other. Uh, and this is what I found. So in the English, Otto talking to Zex calls him uh, Lieutenant. In the Japanese, he calls him Zex Tokuin. So that Toku again is specials and then in is like member. So it's literally like member of the specials. In the English, the random soldier talking about Otto also calls him Lieutenant. And he, in the Japanese, refers to him as Otto Tokuin. So Zex and Otto, therefore, are similar rank. In both languages, Zex just addresses Noin as Noin. When Noin is talking about Zex in English, she calls him the Lightning Count. And when she's talking about him in Japanese, she calls him the Lightning Baron, which is pretty confusing. And then when she's talking to him, she just says Zex. Um, so that implies a sort of familiarity now. They've they've gone past some stuff. Trey's talking to Un, just calls her lady. Un to Trey's, she says in English, Mr. Trey's. And in Japanese, it's Trey's sama. Uh, similarly, the Maganak's talking to Katra, say Master Katra in English, and they say Katra sama in Japanese. Uh, and they talk about Rashid as Rashid Taicho, which is, I think, commanding officer. And then in English, it's uh, translated as Captain Rashid. So there we go. We've got us a bit quick rundown of different titles and, and levels of uh, familiarity. Uh, I will carry that on next episode, see where else we discover. Uh, and continuing on with the who reads the title card, is it always hero question. It was hero this week. Uh, I will listen again to see who reads it next week. Finally, a uh, shout out to Elbro009 who pointed out that in episode 0, in as much as you want to pay attention to that, Noin does know Trez. Um, in fact, she's also with him at the Battle of Mogadishu in Frozen Teardrop, which I also touched on last episode and I completely forgotten about, so thank you for reminding me of that. Alright, that's about it for this episode. Uh, sorry I got a little bit intense in the middle, but I guess it comes with the territory. Uh, maybe Trez is philosophising and Wufei's angst are catching. Anyways, onwards and upwards. Uh, next week is episode 10, and then once again we're taking a one-week break. So that's an episode out next week on the 9th of March. There will be no episode on the 16th, and we are back with episode 11 on the 23rd of March. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and it gave you some food for thought. As ever, if it did, feel free to drop me a line at lemontrash.tumblr.com or on the Radio Meteor website. Just hit the pineapple button. And I will see you in orbit next time. Bye!